MSW Media. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, eating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House, thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. Win. is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 28 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, July 28th. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill. And with me, as always, is real-life lawyer Andy Torres. <laughs> Allison, thank you. I am really looking forward to our show for today. Uh, but first, as always, we have to thank our new patrons who have supported us over at patreon.com slash aisle45pod for as little as a buck an episode. So thank you to Siege MC Sheen, to R. Roberts, Stephen Adams and James Woodhall. And by the way, did you guys notice my audio quality went up last week? <laughs> Cause and effect. You ask, I deliver. <laughs> <laughs> yes, interactive entertainment. Uh, and I'd like to thank Elderly Pepper, Michael Sullivan, Ad Astra, and I get a raise, you get a raise. Hey, Woo! that's very nice. <laughs> that's good advice. Thank you so much for sharing some of your good fortune with us. Uh, we have something uh, coming up for patrons, don't we? Speaking of our patrons. 
We do indeed. We are going to have another Andrew and Allison patron Zoom hangout. These are a lot of fun. The last one we did, oh my gosh, like, uh, you know, you, you we left folks in charge. It was like an after party. It's like when you come back to your house and you're like, you know, just, just, just don't get into the good liquor and you come back and like, you know, I, there are people passed out on the floor and uh, it was... It was, it was a ton of fun. Anyway, uh, we're going to do that this Friday, July 30th at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific. If you are a patron, you will get that link uh, sent to you via Patreon, right? We will post it to Patreon. Uh, it'll get it'll show up in your inbox if you uh, if you have email turned on and um, it'll be awesome. Yeah. And I will have a heart out. And have to use the Zoom for the Beans Happy Hour at 7 p.m. <laughs> Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific. Ooh. So, uh, just so everybody knows. Um, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll pop in over there if I'm allowed. And you know, who knows? You're always allowed. Always allowed. <laughs> uh, all right. But we want to see you special just for cleanup patrons. 6 p.m. this Friday. <laughs> Get to hang out with me and Allison. And um, if that's not fun, you don't know what fun is. <laughs> We can maybe watch Andrew drink whiskey out of a bowl, um, which is one of my favorite pastimes, honestly. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we do have a lot of stuff. A lot of cleanup has been happening this week. Some really great, great stuff and some uh, weird stuff, too. And we, we're going to talk about all of it. On to the A block. All right. Okay, and Allison, you know, before we talk about the bipartisan House Select Committee to investigate the one six insurrection, and before we, uh, you know, take a, a well deserved victory lap on that one, um, I I do want to document one of those slowly developing changes that really like seemed to hit its stride last week and over the weekend, and that's the rising tide of prominent pro Trump conservatives who have been playing footsie with the the virus is a hoax, you know, uh. uh are finally using their voices to urge their moron followers to get the damn vaccine, which, you know, all the rest of us have been saying since 2020. But hey, um, uh, you know what? Better late than never. Welcome to the party. And look, when we say prominent pro-Trump conservatives, we mean prominent. <laughs> yes. Uh, like a turtle dick, Mitch, right? <laughs> uh, Senate minority leader, Mitch McConnell, I always love to say that, who conceded we've made real progress and warned unless vaccination rates increase, that could reverse, quote, these shots need to get in everybody's arms as rapidly as possible, or we're going to be back in a situation in the fall that we don't yearn for, okay, <laughs> uh, that we went through last year. He said that during his weekly news conference. I want to encourage everybody to do that and to ignore all of these other voices that are giving demonstrably bad advice, unquote. Yeah. I, it, look, and and this is not a coincidence, right? We know these folks meet every day and coordinate, and they coordinate with people like Sean Hannity and other Fox News talking head nitwits who, uh, I, I, and again, let's not let them off the hook, right? Like, they have been, and in many cases, still are peddling outright lies about COVID, right? My son asked me this the other day. We were watching MSNBC, and, you know, and it said uh, zero deaths among the vaccinated, uh, you know, all among the unvaccinated. And and Alex said to me, hey, I wonder what Fox is saying right now. And we turned over, and literally it was the opposite. It was just, like, made up. It was, you know, super risky, like, you know, I, so anyway. They're still garbage. We're not letting them off the hook. But uh, Sean Hannity said, quote, I can't say it enough. Enough people have died. We don't need any more death. And it absolutely makes sense for many Americans to get vaccinated. 
I believe in science. I believe in the science of vaccination. Now, look, that's revisionist history from the guy who called COVID-19 a hoax. But hey, it's welcome revisionist history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, he's probably like, oh, yeah, they have we have swing districts in blue states. Uh, and, you know, that we've won by 300, 500, 1,000 votes, or we lost by that, like, a, a narrow margin. We probably don't want our voters dying. <laughs> um, you know, either that or maybe some rich donor called up and said, look, you're tanking the stock market. Can you tell your people to get – like, I don't know what it was, right? <laughs> uh, but you – and you're right, Hannity, they're still going back and saying, I never said that. I mean, they're they're being really dumb about it. But we could fill a segment. Just with these names alone, like Alabama Governor Kay Ivey, House Minority mm-hmm. Whip Steve Scalise, the guy who waited until last weekend to actually get vaccinated, or Ron Death Santis down in Florida. But look, there's a real risk uh, that, that that this is way too little, way too late, right? And we've heard stories of, of doctors talking about people on their deathbeds asking for the vaccine. It's too late. Yeah. The Delta variant of COVID-19 continues to spread at like wildfire. Uh, it's got a thousand times more, I guess, viral load, and and it has the potential to infect those who are fully vaccinated as well. That, in turn, is likely to lead to the return of mask mandates, even among the fully vaccinated. Yeah, and 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 let's also—that's all true. We also need to emphasize that virtually all of the spread right now, right, and literally one hundred percent of the deaths from COVID—that's still three hundred a day. That's still wait three hundred too many, right? Those are coming from the unvaccinated population, right? CDC data published for May shows 107,000 hospitalizations for COVID-19 across the country during the month of May, of whom fewer than 1,200, 1,200, 1% were among fully vaccinated people, right? That's 99 to 1, take those odds, right? And and, and look, in the long term, right, the goal is we're, we're at 50% of the country of the, of the eligible population being fully vaccinated. That's way below the 75 to 85 percent threshold we need for herd immunity. This is basic science. So long as we're below the herd immunity threshold, COVID will continue to spread. Each spread increases the likelihood for mutant variants, which in turn increases the likelihood that one of those variants will evade our existing vaccines. And that takes us back to square one, March 2020. Yeah. And and let's remember, you know, herd immunity, natural herd immunity, which was uh, Trump's idea that who was that doctor that wasn't a doctor? Scott something. Atlas. (laughs) Remember him? Uh, They wanted uh, this natural herd immunity thing. We have to remember it wasn't herd immunity that eradicated polio or smallpox. It was vaccines. So, yeah. Yeah. Back to square one. Thanks, I guess, to those grotesquely irresponsible idiots for finally changing part of their tune. Uh, I'm not giving them, like you said, a pass on any of this. Neither are you. None of us should. I hope it works. And, you know, we just want this to people are like, well, let's call it the Trump vaccine. You know what? Fine. Whatever it takes to get you vaccinated. And I know all the listeners, I mean, literally 100 percent. Uh, accepting those with severe health conditions or vaccinated. But if you have or who can't be vaccinated too young. But if you have friends, family members, colleagues, it's time to be a dick about this. It's time to tell <laughs> grandpa he can't come visit his grandkids until he gets the shot because grandpa has a choice. Your kids might not because of their yeah. age. So it's time to play hardball because the Delta variant looks like it's it, it is more virulent. And I'd like to not find out what comes after that. I well said so. It's up to me. Smooth transition from the virus that's actually wrecking our country. How about to the traitors who tried to wreck our country, but 
fortunately failed. Right? Nice segue. So, yeah, thank you. So let's high five each other. Right? right. Last week, we told you about Kevin McCarthy's middle finger salute to the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol by nominating five trolls. Right. Indiana Representative Jim Banks. Jim Jordan, Kelly Armstrong of North Dakota, Rodney Davis of Illinois, Troy Niels of Texas. And we both thought it was probably a 50-50 call that Pelosi would, would block either or both of Banks and Jordan, um, who are material witnesses and po potential collaborators after the fact to the insurrection. And sure enough, we were proven correct. She, she blocked both of them and good for her. Yes, that's right. Pelosi declined to accept the recommendation of Banks and Jordan, the two worst offenders, which then led Kevin McCarthy to, quote unquote, take his ball and go home like a child, yeah. <laughs> vowing that his other three picks wouldn't serve on the select committee and that we will instead pursue our own investigation of the facts, uh-huh, <laughs> which is uh, not a power that Kevin McCarthy has. <laughs> no, no, it is not. <laughs> and I should add that Pelosi did not object to, to freshman goof, goofball Troy Niels of Texas, even though Niels also voted against ratification of the electoral votes. Pelosi said that that wouldn't be a disqualifier. Yeah. And she said what we were all thinking. It wasn't just Jordan and Banks's votes that made them unacceptable. But their behavior, you know, it, they personally put out statements after they were nominated, basically saying they were going to obstruct and, and just jerk us all around during this whole commission. Yeah. Yeah. And and call witnesses to give voice to conspiracy theories. And yeah, no, good, good, good on her. <laughs> so to reiterate what we said last week, this select committee is authorized by House Resolution 503. That's why. McCarthy can't just, you know, do his own investigation with blackjack and hookers, right? Like, you actually have to pass a resolution with the majority vote to do House business. Otherwise, you're just squatting in somebody else's conference room, you know, like the, the guys that had the unofficial college club, right? Like, I, you know. Yeah, or it's like Ru the Rudy Giuliani Arizona Senate hearing at the Biltmore yeah. or whatever the fuck <laughs> it was. Ah, uh, Melissa Carone, uh, where are you now? Uh, where are you now? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good that's a really good melissa carota right. impersonation anyway uh so hr 503 gives pelosi the authority to name all 13 members of the committee that's what we pointed out last week five are in consultation with the minority leader mccarthy well she's consulted right so this is not a veto this is not rejected this is not a back and forth she declined to take his recommendations for two people um she accepted the three others, but it is not clear as of the date of this recording. And the the membership link, I am literally right now refreshing the House Committee's membership link, and it, and, it, and it is giving me an error message, right? I click on committee membership, and it says, problem detected with your request. So uh, we do not know, as of this recording, uh, whether Niels Davis and or Armstrong will agree to serve in light of McCarthy's statements. We do not know the full makeup of the committee. No, but I did see Armstrong on, I think, CNN today, who, who mm. it was asked specifically, like what, you know, because he's like, well, we aren't going to participate if you're not going to let us put who we want on the committee. And, and it was like, well, she let you and your two other colleagues stay, Niels and and Davis. And he's like, well, I'm doing what she's I'm doing what he says, not what she says. So <laughs> uh, but we do know this. After rejecting Jordan and Banks, Pelosi invited Illinois Republican Adam Kinzinger to join the committee and he accepted. Yep. He joins Liz Cheney of Wyoming and seven Democrats. And, and we know Cheney is a fellow Republican to Kinzinger. Uh, the three chairs, Benny Thompson, Zoe Lofgren and Adam Schiff. Those are powerhouses, along with Jamie Raskin, another standout oh. <laughs> from impeachment. Plus, Pete Aguilar, Stephanie Murphy, and Elaine Luria. 
Uh, we do not know who the last four members will be, but by the time the show airs, the committee will have convened its first hearing. Tuesday, the 27th, 9.30 in the morning, the hearing is entitled The Law Enforcement Experience on January 6th, and it's in room 310 of the Cannon House office building. It should be televised. I hope we're all watching because these stories were horrifying. Those voices deserve to be heard. And Kelly Armstrong said that while being interviewed uh, today on CNN. But, you know, basically said you have to take all of our appointees or or, or none, uh, which is just disingenuous. And I think he called it a, part, a partisan exercise that will have no what like uh, it'll have no credibility. I think he said that like 10 times. I, I nothing is is, uh, you know, you, it, it, there is nothing that would surprise me of the political party that jumped behind, you know, Robert Mueller and his 12 angry Democrats, <laughs> you know, lifelong Republicans all right. Uh, but but if you're a member of the group arguing that Liz Cheney doesn't count as a Republican, I, 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 I don't know what to say. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think the media is going to fall for it. I will point out the media fell for it when they kicked Justin Amash out of the party and said, you know, no Republicans supported. Well, that that was not true. Right. Like the one one of their guys read it and was like, holy shit, you know, and then and then they kicked him out of the party. Um, that's not the same as saying no Republicans agree. So uh, hopefully, you know, we'll get uh, we'll get honest and straightforward reporting on this because um, uh, uh, it, it's a minority. But there are Republicans who do not think you should be able to overthrow a, a legitimate Democratic election. So, you know, there's the bar. Yeah. And and we all know, you know, Mark McCarthy could have picked half. Yeah. I, it, <laughs> and and had all control, it took was not filibuster. And, and, yeah. Yep. And had and had uh, and had control over whether subpoenas could be issued. He, he could he could have picked half of this. And he actually wrote out that whole thing that he wanted and then voted against it. So. We the, from the beginning, and you and I had said this. He was going to take his ball and go home. From the beginning, yep. he was not going to participate in this. And you know, I said to you on last week's show, I'm surprised he nominated people. I thought that he wouldn't do that because it would show legitimacy to this. But I think that that was he put people on there. She knew would she you know that he knew that she would object to Pelosi would object to, so she would remove them, and then he could not be part of it. That I think that was all by design. But I could be wrong. I think I think that's right. But I think Pelosi outfoxed him. And, you know, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. The point is, we have to get to the truth. And of course, Toomey, yeah. Pat Toomey comes on TV today and says, you know, well, uh, this clearly uh, is a partisan thing. It's, uh, you know, by, you know, appointing who she wants, it's, it's clearly partisan. And, and that's just, you know, how? Why? Why does it make it? They, they, they just want to make Republicans look bad, is what he says. And it's like, well, if you don't want to look bad, don't look bad. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I do not. I continue to be befuddled that folks like Pat Toomey, who are retiring, right, uh, over whom the the dead hand of Donald Trump should have no influence, um, uh, are still not free to speak their minds. Um, you know, that that tells us how awful the the. The dynamic is within the Republican Party right now. Yeah, well, so. I think regardless of what whether you're with the Trump caucus or the reasonable caucus in the Republican Party and reasonable is a stretch, I know. Uh, but yeah. whether you're with the you're Trump Republican or uh, the other kind of Republican, I'm sure that their messaging is united in that this is going to be a sham investigation. I'm, that I'm sure that that message is a unified front by by the Republican Party, whether you're a Trump supporter or not, except for Liz I Cheney think, and Kinzinger. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
I think that's right. All right, everybody, we have a lot more to get to, uh, including some cool stuff from Department of Justice, some very cool comings and goings, but we have to take a quick break, so stay with us. We'll be right back with Clean Up on Aisle 45. Hello, everyone. It's Allison Gill from Clean Up on Aisle 45. Writing under a deadline is very stressful. I remember the pressure of having just minutes to finish writing ad copy in time for a recording and kind of being in a panic to make sure that the words were just right. Imagine how much easier writing would be if experts were available to look over your drafts whenever you needed them instantly. WordTune is exactly that writing partner, but in digital form. No need to waste precious time agonizing over the perfect sentence. With WordTune, you can hit deadlines on time every time. In the blink of an eye, WordTune will provide you with options based on your original words. I started using WordTune. It's totally amazing. It's easy to download. It works as an extension on my browser. Anything I type, I can highlight and click the WordTune icon, and it instantly gives me a variety of alternative wordings for my sentence. I can't believe how well it works, and for doing rewrites and revisions, it's absolutely wonderful. WordTune uses the most advanced language processing technology out there. It's the first AI-powered online writing tool that understands meaning, not just words. It recognizes what you're actually trying to say and suggests ways to make your writing more clear, compelling, and authentic. No other writing tool does what WordTune can do. It is a total game changer. Your writing impacts how people perceive you, and you can shape your future prospects. Writing effectively will help you stand out, so I really recommend you try WordTune. WordTune works anywhere you're working online. Google Docs, Slack, Outlook, Web, WhatsApp, everything. Uh, and listeners can try WordTune for free at wordtune.com cleanup. Get help writing your emails, reports, presentations, resumes, blogs, all of it, anything you need today by going to wordtune, W-O-R-D-T-U-N-E dot com slash cleanup. You'll be glad you did. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, this week, we got some cleanup news that's been a long time coming, <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> Attorney General Merrick Garland finally issued a long-awaited directive Wednesday seeking to limit political influence on law enforcement matters by strictly, strictly limiting contacts between the Justice Department personnel and the White House. Yeah, that, look, this was a campaign promise by Biden to reestablish the independence of the Justice Department after, you know, the last guy spent four years weaponizing it by being in close contact with his attorneys general, by using them as his personal lawyers. And on the flip side, after years of the DOJ interfering in cases on behalf of the former president and his allies, like my Partner on my other show, Thomas Smith, likes to say, remember when Bill Clinton met with Loretta Lynch on the tarmac for like eight seconds, right? Like that, 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 that is what it used to be, right? It, there used to be a wall of separation <laughs> between the White House and the DOJ. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden, half the country didn't care about that so long as it was their guy using the attorney general as his personal lawyer. So this is welcome. Yeah, and neither Bill or Hillary were in the White House at that time. Yeah, I, yeah, I, it's what makes that it's what makes that such a great rant. When yeah, Thomas I just want to make it, sure so. everybody yeah. remembers. This is the tarmac. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and while we all know that uh, instances, the instances they're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, of Garland's interference and and or not Garland, excuse me, of Barr's interference. Uh, Garland didn't mention any of those in his memo. He didn't give any specifics. Uh, but we know him. The handling of the Mueller findings, Barr's interference in Stone, the sentencing, Barr's interference in the Flynn case, uh, Barr, <laughs> Barr's refusal to open an investigation into the Ukraine scandal despite mountains of evidence. Uh, and most recently, what we've learned about the investigation and charging of Tom Barrick and the execution of the search warrant against Rudy Giuliani this past April. It's been apparent that the directive putting that barrier between Maine Justice and the White House needed to be reinstated. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, here's here's, uh, you know, quoting Garland directly from the memorandum, quote, 
The success of the Department of Justice depends upon the trust of the American people. That trust must be earned every day, and we can only do so through our adherence to the longstanding departmental norms of independence from inappropriate influences, the principled exercise of discretion, and the treatment of like cases alike. Um, you know, I guess that's as close as Merrick Garland gets to throwing shade, you know. Yeah, a little bit, right. But I mean, it's almost like, do we really need to issue a memorandum saying murder is wrong? Okay, all right, everybody. Yep, murder's let's, wrong. <laughs> let's put out the, let's put the warning on the deodorant that says for external use only. Like, right. these are, okay, we'll do it. Uh, but the memo also says that the White House shouldn't be given a heads up about criminal or civil enforcement actions. But it does discuss possible exceptions to that, doesn't it? It, it, it does. So the Justice Department, uh, and I'm quoting directly, will not advise the White House concerning pending or contemplated criminal or civil law enforcement investigations or cases unless doing so is important for the performance of the president's duties and appropriate from a law enforcement perspective. OK, so, yes, that's a loophole. Uh, but notice that that even in crafting the loophole that 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 requires input from both sides, right? Like it doesn't just say, unless it's important for national security or for the performance of the president's duties, it's got to fit both of those criteria. It's got to be important to the president. And it also has to be appropriate from the law enforcement perspective, which means as determined by DOJ. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and part of rebuilding these norms is encouraging the, the sense of independence that, you know, our former guy spent four years tearing down. You know, uh, so uh, the policy also seeks to route uh, permitted contacts about such cases through the department's most senior officials, uh, namely Garland and Deputy Attorney General Dag Lisa Monaco, uh, and also through White House Counsel Dana Remus and her top deputies. The reason to do that is because those are the folks who are subject to uh, confirm confirmation by the Senate. So, yeah, and I know what you're thinking under the Trump presidency, that loophole. Doing so is important for the performance of the president's duties and appropriate from a law enforcement perspective. Of course, Trump would say it's important for my duties and Barr would say we're fine with it from a law enforcement perspective. And of course, the DAG and White House counsel would all be cool with it as well. Uh, but, you know, you have to remember that the, when they were in office, when that administration was happening, they had a kind of a similar policy. We'll go over that in a minute. But, you know, if you have top to bottom fascists, they're going to shit all over these policies. So the important thing is vote. Uh, and, and matters of national security are also exempt from this policy, by the way, along yep. with budget considerations and criminal justice policy issues. Uh, and the White House also issued a similar but broader memo giving White House office officials guidance about their interactions with other agencies, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So again, directly from Garland's memo. Specific procedures apply to communications with the Department of Justice in order to ensure that DOJ exercises its investigatory and prosecutorial functions free from the fact or appearance of improper political influence. Right? DOJ plays many different roles, including as a prosecutorial and law enforcement agency, true, legal advisor to the president and executive branch departments and agencies. And again, advisor implies a degree of independence, not subservience. Litigator that defends U.S. government policies in action and policymaker on a range of issues. The proper White House approach to the department depends upon which DOJ function is involved. Um, and again, I, you know, this is reiterating a lot of basic principles. But, you know, that's that's part of the job here is 
<laughs> going back to first principles. Yeah, and I do love that they that they actually say uh, that the prosecutorial functions have to be free from the fact or appearance yep. of improper political influence. The appearance part, I know, is where a lot of us were pulling our hair out. You know, lawful I, but awful, right? It, it, we and and again, that used to be bipartisan agreement until January twentieth, twenty seventeen. Yeah, of course. And it's of note that the, a White House official has says, hey, we've we've been playing by these rules since Biden's inauguration, but it merited reemphasizing. Uh, and, you know, like I said, these are the rules that this Department of Justice is going to follow. Uh, and I think that that's pretty much, you know, where we can trust that they will not abandon and, and abuse these loopholes. But was there actually, uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask you because. I had mentioned this earlier that, you know, maybe there, I think there was a policy like this in place, kind of, during the Trump administration. They just blatantly ignored it. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's complicated. OK, so what the unnamed White House official is talking about is that uh, Eric Holder, uh, under the Obama administration, promulgated a similar directive. And, and like I said, this is not a controversial statement. This is the kind of thing that used to be agreed upon, you know, across the aisle. Um, and so the Biden administration is saying, oh, yeah, we're just following the policy that Holder put into place and left in place. Um, the difference is that when he was White House counsel under Trump, Don McGahn issued a White House contacts policy a week after Trump was sworn in that purported to, quote, interpret the holder policy and shockingly interpreted in a way that basically none of its uh, directives applied to Trump at all. Right. So Trump not only raised specific requests for investigations directly with his attorneys general, uh, you recall uh, uh, Barr's directive that any politically contacted uh, uh, investigation be routed through his office in 2020. Right. So uh, so that that was the reason for that. Uh, but but Trump also reached out to U.S. attorneys directly, like particularly as he tried to enlist federal prosecutors in chasing down his ephemeral claims of election fraud. And that's as kindly as I can put it. <laughs> <laughs> very kind. Very kind of you. And it wasn't just Trump. Right. We know Mark Meadows was making investigation mm. inquiries uh, of the Department of Justice as well uh, during Trump's final weeks in office. Uh, and this kind of policy weighs heavy on a lot of current issues facing Merrick Garland, like the call for an investigation into the FBI and the White House for the handling of the background inquiry into Kavanaugh, that whole thing, <laughs> um, you know, which I kind of want to talk about here. And I also sort of want to talk about the the Tom Barrick uh, indictments. And, you know, the New York Times is saying that this all came out of the Mueller investigation and they were able to charge last year, well outside of the 60-day window to interfere with an election. But like you said, Barr put out that memo that said any candidate or their staff or uh, et cetera, et cetera, it has to go through me if you want to have an investigation. And so we don't know whether Barr actually suppressed that, um, that Tom Barrick, uh, those charges, or whether, as you and I discussed, maybe the prosecutors just kind of sat on it for a while so yeah so let's let's talk briefly about about each of these um let's start off with the with the Kavanaugh hearings right so during the Kavanaugh hearings we were advised uh that the FBI after being 
uh, apprised of uh, uh, Christine Blasey Ford's uh, testimony, uh, was conducting a, quote, supplemental investigation into claims about Brett Kavanaugh, because that's really serious thing. Um, we You also saw the headline uh, over this past weekend that in connection uh, with that supplemental investigation, we now know that the FBI received over 4,500 tips that were related to Kavanaugh. Now, those are folks calling in to the FBI, right? Even if you want to put a big filter on that and say, you know, tip lines tend to, you know, have minimal efficacy, um, I, you can put whatever error bars you want on it. For us to have not known that was the number at the time um, is, uh, you know, deliberately deceptive in order to cram Kavanaugh onto the court. Um, right. We're not and learning anything new about that. Yet. <laughs> no. And we have to, you know, we have to understand. I've talked to Frank Figluzzi about this. I know that people were calling for the FBI must explain this. I mean, but there's a longstanding policy in the FBI on background inquiries and reopening background inquiries that... Whatever information they gather is for their client, which in this case was the White House. Uh, they aren't allowed to investigate any of those leads. Uh, they just have to hand that information over over to the White House. And we do know from old 2018 reporting that Trump was actually let the FBI do whatever they want. And McGahn was like, no. Yeah. And, McG and McGahn put these guardrails uh, on this entire thing. So, uh, you know, I agree that with uh, Ted Lieu, I think, called and, and perhaps uh, I can't remember what other member of Congress is, is asking for an investigation. But I think that the focus of the investigation should be on McGahn and the White House, who were the clients of this particular inquiry. Uh, of course, bring the FBI in to ask what happened. They're just going to sit there and say, well, our policy is we gather the stuff and give it off to them. They decide what to do with it. That's how these inquiries work by nature and by policy. Long, long, long standing policy on these inquiries. Um, it, it is very interesting that the FBI didn't tell us. Yeah. So everything you've just said is exactly correct. And all, all I can do is, you know, kind of gild the lily around the edges. Right. The supplemental inquiry came from a directive of the White House Counsel's Office. The FBI does not have independent prosecutorial or investigatory authority. They have to be acting pursuant to their statutory authority. And here they can provide information as sought by the White House Counsel's Office. And then the question is, what do you do? What did the White House Counsel's Office do once they received that investigation? We know exactly what they did. They buried it and they crammed through a vote in, yeah. you know, the, the, the winter of 2018 uh, to get Kavanaugh on the court because that was by far the most important thing. Um, so anything that says uh, the, the FBI is going to look, I, I would like to I, 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 I don't disagree that I would like to ask some questions of Chris Ray. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like to find out exactly what was going on, exactly how if there were constraints, if there were guardrails that were put up. Right. Find out from the FBI perspective. What did you think you were being asked to do uh, when you saw X happen? What did you do? So, for example, right. Um, one of the things we learned uh, from uh, having uh, Robert Mueller's testimony be before Congress uh, 
as largely unhelpful as that was, uh, was that when Bill Barr wrote that unbelievably lying, misleading, quote, summary of the Mueller report that, you know, omitted words like not from its summary, uh, that 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 Mueller wrote him three separate times to say, dude, you're lying about my report. Right. I, I, and we did not know that until Mueller told us that. So is it possible that Chris Ray wrote a, a, a memo back to to uh, to Don McGahn that said, um, you haven't said anything about the, you know, numerous independent corroborated accounts of uh, misconduct that we've referred to you about Brett Kavanaugh. And again, we don't we don't know what they referred. Um, but uh, but but uh, but yes, suggesting that this was, you know, negligence on the FBI's part strikes me as as misplaced. Um, it, it was directed by the White House. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and for those saying, well, why didn't the FBI take these 4,500 tips and make a criminal referral? To whom? Right. right. <laughs> whom, yeah. whom would you like them to have sent those? I, I believe they sent, they sent them to the White House. I know they sent a lot of information about the interviews they did to the Senate Judiciary Committee. I know Gerald Nadler said, well, we're going to look at this as soon as we get the House back, and he hasn't. So uh, there's, a, there's plenty of blame to go around. Uh, and I don't want anyone to get too excited about this, meaning they can overturn somehow Kavanaugh's appointment no, to his seat. No, they cannot. Right. Yeah. The the remedy for Brett Kavanaugh is impeachment. That's it. That's, That's it. It. There's no way you can be like, OK, but yeah, but look, they crammed it and hit it and he he's guilty and uh, he should be that that appointment should be illegitimate or Trump was illegitimate. So all of the things he did should be illegitimate. Nah, it's it, not going to fly. It it. Again, it is the exact same standards that we saw from the last two impeachments. So, you know, can you craft a case to the public that, uh, you know, Republicans will get behind? Um, I know I'm a lot more pessimistic about that than I was in 2017, because um, I kind of think we did that uh, with our last criminal president and uh, it didn't really seem to go anywhere. So do not be thinking that that, that, that is part of it. I also want to speak uh, to the to the criminal referral process, um, many of these cases, right? <laughs> because I think it's important to understand the the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. Many of these cases, perhaps all of them, may have been past the statute of limitations, right? There may not have been. When you make a criminal referral, what you are saying is we think that there is sufficient information for a prosecutor to charge and potentially prove guilty beyond a reasonable doubt that criminal conduct occurred. And if the the conduct that is alleged is um, subject to statutes of limitation, right, you, you, you could easily understand why it would be 100 percent relevant to the hearings, but not rise to the level of something you could prosecute in 2018. No, most of this is going to be played out in the court of public opinion uh, based on even if we get a chance to investigate those 4,500 tips, which I hope somebody does. But I got to tell you, even if there's some one of them is about an instance where there's irrefutable proof and no statute of limitations, I don't think Republicans will impeach him. Honestly, yeah. even if he gets even if he's indicted. It, but it, we it. it by very right like it was not piecemeal it was two separate impeachments but we have met now moved to the point where um open commission of crimes is not sufficient for members of one political party to say that they will support impeachment against a person of their own party and yep. um 
that something's got to be done about that, right? Like that is not a sustainable legal system where you say, yeah, but if he's on our team, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, <laughs> and yeah. look, it wasn't the rule for Richard goddamn Nixon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I don't, but it's the rule now. So, yeah. Now, now let's talk for a minute uh, before we go to the comings and goings yep. uh, block about the Tom Barrick potential suppression of that case because Andrew you and I had posited that there mm-hmm. were uh, and I've said this a million times and, and I've talked to a million people about it there there were 14 cases handed off by just Mueller alone uh, that were behind redaction bars two of them we knew uh, to be uh, Stone and Cohen now we know a third because the New York Times is reporting that the Tom Barrick indictments arose from an, what something that came out of the Mueller investigation that was handed off to the Eastern District of New York and uh, of course, that's these are sources reporting, uh, you know, that are familiar with the matter. I want to I want to clarify that. We'd, I haven't seen the documents, um, <laughs> but uh, I think it's very interesting that you know, wondering whether or not these prosecutors listened to Bill Barr's memo saying you have to tell me if you're going after uh, one a presidential candidate's staff. Now, granted. Barrick was former staff, but I don't know if they thought that that fell within the purview of that or if these prosecutors in the Eastern District of New York saw Barr and saw Donahue, who was the U.S. attorney there at the time, and said they both really don't think FARA charges or 951 charges, which is not exactly under the it's a it's a FARA charge, but it's not under the Federal Agents for yeah, yeah. Registration Act. <laughs> uh, we talk, you and I have explained that. Everyone who's listening knows this. Um, but they don't they hate those. They think they're dumb. I'm let's just keep our nose down, keep investigating. Um, And these prosecutors under in the bar DOJ and in the Donahue uh, Eastern District of New York were interviewing Tom Barrick and 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 bringing up charges of him lying uh, to them about very obvious things. And something else I wanted to ask you, too. Everyone's like, where's the counterintelligence report? Where's the counterintelligence report? If if with with given the detail of this speaking indictment and all of these communications and a burner phone with with, uh, you know, apps as a secret back channel to the United Arab Emirates. That seems to me like something that you would have to get using a FISA warrant. Now, I could be totally wrong, but and they could maybe they got it through other means. But if they did, that seems like kind of part of the counterintelligence investigation. I wow okay so a ton to unpack there let's let's kind of <laughs> let's kind of work in reverse um i i i i wouldn't know how to unpack the um the the the, the counterintelligence the sort of more speculative portion that you've gone through there it that that seems very plausible to me but again you know sort of no way to confirm in terms of being a handoff um Here's the evidence that I look to that leads me to believe that it was a, a Mueller handoff. And that is when you when you delve into the, the the indictment, right? Count one is the 951 charge that you explain. Count two is um, conspiracy related to that. Count three is obstruction of justice of the Eastern District of New York. Um, but then you get into a number of 
18 USC 1001 false statement charges, right? Um, which were a favorite of the Mueller investigation, right? These are the ones that were derided as perjury traps as if, you know, you have a constitutional right to lie to the, uh, you know, to, to, right. to, to, to investigators. But just like um, the, the supermarket is a shoplifting trap. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and so those are, you know, counts four, five and, and six. Um, and, and they're, pretty direct in drawing lines. So, for example, paragraph 105, count six, says um, uh, Barrick did knowingly and willfully make one or more materially false statements uh, in uh, a matter within the jurisdiction of the executive branch of the government of the United States, to wit, uh, Barrick falsely stated and represented to FBI special agents that after the 2016 U.S. presidential election, Barrick had no role in facilitating communication between the president-elect Trump and officials from the United Arab Emirates, including Emirati Official 1 and Emirati Official 2, when in fact, he then and there well knew and believed Barak facilitated communications between the president-elect and Emirati Official 1 and Emirati Official 2 after the 2016 presidential election, including by arranging one or more telephone calls between the president-elect and Emirati Official 1 and Emirati Official 2. So um, it, it it the reason I read that one is... Uh, number one, because it speaks directly to the connection to Trump corruption. And, and we know that, that that that's what Mueller was investigating. And number two, because I had the same thought in, in reading that these these unindicted Emirati official one and Emirati official two in, in the indictment, um, the only way in which you would write this indictment in this way, and again, not a prosecutor, but but, you know, I, I play one on the radio sometimes um, is. If you had recordings of that telephone call or other supplemental evidence related to that telephone call. And again, that strikes me as the kind of stuff you get under a FISA warrant. So that's how I would wrap it all together. Still very, very speculative. But if you're looking for documentary evidence to corroborate that hypothesis, that's where I would go. Yeah, and I can imagine with those 40 FBI agents, uh, FBI agents co-located with Mueller who were taking the IC stuff, the the, the counterintelligence uh, it, it stuff, you know, that, that Mueller was producing, and they hear a conversation uh, about between Emirati one who's M, it's it's MBZ and and and, and you know, the, the president, and these back channel communications and and Mueller goes. Oh, not Russia. Send it off to the Eastern District of New York. Uh, <laughs> oh, not in my not in my memo from Rosenstein. Send it off. And so I, I have to say, if you're and, beca- and because FISA doesn't come from DOJ stuff, right? That's DOD, CIA, NSA shit. So that's kind of why I'm like, hey, let's look at those other 10, 11, 12, however many we have left redacted cases handed off by Mueller. I'm willing to bet everyone who's been yelling, where's the counterintelligence investigation? I think they're behind those redaction bars. But again, pure speculation. Uh, I, but yeah, he, and, and the, he lied. Barrick lied to these FBI agents in 2019 after the Mueller investigation was closed. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Fun. Uh, but <laughs> I, I am so we're really, going to stay on this. Yeah. yeah I am really interested to see. 
what they come up with when they investigate whether or not these were actively being suppressed by the attorney general or U.S. attorney Donahue, this particular case and others, they say in their letter when they ask for an investigation. We don't want to know just about this case. Were there other cases suppressed? Oh, like, I don't know, the Rudy Giuliani case or (laughs) any of those other cases under those redaction bars uh, or even ones that we might not be there that we don't know that didn't arise from the Mueller investigation. Were there any investigations that were suppressed actively uh, by, uh, you know, Barr, Trump, et cetera? And I'm, I'm fascinated to find out what comes out of that investigation. Me too. Hmm. Well, with that out of the way, we do have a lot of very, very cool comings and some, I don't know if we have any goings, but the comings are great. And we're <laughs> going to get to them right after this break. So stay with us. It's happy. It's fun. It's happy fun ball. Yes, it's happy fun ball. The toy sensation that's sweeping the nation. Only $14.95 at participating stores. Get one today. Warning. Pregnant women, the elderly, and children under 10 should avoid prolonged exposure to Happy Fun Ball. Caution, Happy Fun Ball may suddenly accelerate to dangerous speeds. Happy Fun Ball contains a liquid core, which if exposed due to rupture, should not be touched, inhaled, or looked at. Do not use Happy Fun Ball on concrete. Discontinue use of Happy Fun Ball if any of the following occurs. Itching, vertigo, dizziness, tingling in extremities, loss of balance or coordination, slurred speech, temporary blindness, profuse sweating, or heart palpitations. If Happy Fun Ball begins to smoke, get away immediately, seek shelter, and cover head. Happy Fun Ball may stick to certain types of skin. When not in use, Happy Fun Ball should be returned to its special container and kept under refrigeration. Failure to do so relieves the makers of Happy Fun Ball, Wacky Products Incorporated, and its parent company, Global Chemical Unlimited, of any and all liability. Ingredients of Happy Fun Ball include an unknown glowing substance which fell to Earth, presumably from outer space. Happy Fun Ball has been shipped to our troops in Saudi Arabia and is also being dropped by our warplanes on Iraq. Do not taunt Happy Fun Ball. Happy Fun Ball comes with a lifetime guarantee. Happy Fun Ball. Except no substitutes. All right, Allison, and as you teased before the break, it is time for everyone's favorite segment, Comings and Goings. And this week, uh, as as you suggested, we say hello to a bunch of new faces. Uh, we begin with uh, Kenneth Polite whom the U.S. Senate on Tuesday, last Tuesday, confirmed as Assistant Attorney General and Chief of the Department of Justice Criminal Division by a 56 to 44 vote. That means Polite will have authority over prosecutions ranging from corporate and cybercrime to drug trafficking. Yes, yes. Polite's hearings were a breeze. He had no organized opposition and had to answer only one question from the Senate Judiciary Committee, which was friendly. <laughs> So in days gone by, this would have been a unanimous approval. Instead, it was, as you noted, 56 to 44. And if that strikes you as an odd division, that's because it was. In addition to your usual and semi-usual sources, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, along with Tom Tillis of North Carolina and Lindsey Graham, who knows what that guy's up to, and (laughs) both members of Louisiana's Senate delegation, Bill Cassidy and John Kennedy, Polite is from Louisiana, previously served as U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Louisiana. So again, in days gone by, Republicans would have typically deferred to the judgment of their local colleagues. Oh, sorry. I was stuck in 1994 for a minute there. Yeah, I mean, but but you can be forgiven, right? Like this is kind of a throwback. This is the thing that should have been 98 to nothing, right? Um, here's Here's John Kennedy, right? 
on Polite. Quote, I'm confident that Kenneth Polite will exercise sound judgment as an assistant attorney general. I believe he'll pursue justice and shun political pressure. And that's why I was happy to support his nomination. Um, Polite was ousted in 2017 uh, by the former guy uh, and went back into private practice for a couple of years. But he was somebody who had strong bipartisan support previously uh, for uh, going into the uh, Eastern District of Louisiana as, as U.S. attorney, as you, as you mentioned. Um, when Polite's predecessor was forced to resign in disgrace and he basically like cleaned up the office, did a good job in terms of leadership. And so, you know, I guess 56 votes is about as bipartisan as it gets today. Ah, Yeah, true. Uh, it's sad, right? Very sad. Uh, we're also starting to see the Biden administration fill the ranks among U.S. attorneys. Finally, yay! <laughs> nominating eight new U.S. attorneys, including one in the District of Columbia. That's the office overseeing the prosecutions of hundreds of defendants charged in the insurrection. Biden's nominees would run offices in the District of Columbia, Indiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, Western District, and Washington State. I got excited when I saw New York. <laughs> uh, and most would be historic firsts, including the first black or female attorneys to lead their districts. And how many times have we said that in this segment? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the nominees include, as you referenced, uh, Matthew Graves. He's a former fraud and public corruption prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia. Um, mm. So he's got uh, a lot of work on his plate. He is replacing Michael Sherwin. Woohoo! Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Bye bye to you. Bye. Yeah. God damn that guy. Uh, so, but look, a, a quick rundown of the other nominees include uh, two from my home state of Maryland, right? Eric Barron. Uh, he's a state lawmaker who was served as a prosecutor, policy advisor to Biden on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, he would be the first African American U.S. attorney in the District of Maryland. Um, Zachary Myers, who's presently in Maryland, uh, he's a national security and cybersecurity specialist who is heading back to Indiana to become, if confirmed, the first black U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Indiana. Yep, yep. And we've got Rachel Rollins. That's the district attorney in Suffolk County, Massachusetts. She'd be the first black woman to serve as U.S. attorney in that state. Clifford Johnson, who would be the first black lawyer to lead the Northern District of Indiana. Vanessa Waldreff, the first woman to run the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Washington State. And Nicholas Brown, who has been a federal prosecutor and general counsel to the governor, who would be the first black lawyer to run the Western District of Washington State. That's the part that includes Seattle. <laughs> and look, uh, we're alighting over their qualifications. These are all eminently qualified lawyers, right? Brown has been an AUSA for 35 years, right? Like it, it is yet another validation of the administration's philosophy that you do not have to compromise quality for diversity. That as that once you, you haven't said, OK, bring me the best white men you can find, uh, you, you, you all of a sudden, like we get a real deep bench out there. So um, these lawyers represent the, the first a batch of U.S. attorney nominees advanced by the Biden White House, uh, which is still working overtime to fill all of the key Justice Department posts uh, six months into the administration. Um, last week, I, I want to mention the, the White House announced uh, that it would nominate Jonathan Cantor, who is a great pick for assistant attorney general to run the antitrust division at DOJ. That's something that has been gutted uh, as long as I've been alive, right? Like the Clinton DOJ uh, was not strong on antitrust issues. Um, Jonathan Cantor is an antitrust lawyer uh, who has argued 
uh, on behalf of consumers uh, for, for his career. It's a fantastic choice. Um, but but there's still a lot of work to do, right? Um, it, it, the Biden administration withdrew its nominee for the civil division head and has yet to name a solicitor general. That's who argues on behalf of the DOJ to the Supreme Court. Kind of an important pick. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still here. You know, that's what we're saying. But those those are empty. All right. So get cracking, Biden, Biden administration. Uh, but in the meantime, welcome aboard to the first of many waves of U.S. attorneys as we try to clean up on aisle 45. Ooh, I saw <laughs> what you did there. It was really good. You see that? You like that? I, I'm surprised that it's taking this long. Does it always take this long? I mean, we're we're into August almost. It, it, it I need to check back in. Remember when uh, I, I mentioned sort of the Washington Post tracker like five or six episodes ago? Um at that point, Biden was kind of roughly uh, ahead of both Trump and Obama in terms of appointees. Um, it does feel like it's taken a long time and uh, and it feels like there's just so much work to do. So uh, I will investigate that. And one week from today, I will get back to you and let you know sort of where we are in terms of historical pace versus going forward. I- I'm with you. Seems seems like there's just so much work to do. But um but a lot of that may be uh, that there's so much work to do. <laughs> yeah. And keep in mind, these these U.S. attorneys will be here for four years. This isn't a two year thing. This doesn't go with, you know, midterms. No. This is this goes with the, the president. So uh, that's it. That's our show. Andrew, I'm looking forward to seeing you this Friday on our patron Zoom call. Uh, and that's at three Pacific. Right. Yep. Six big people. Six time. Eastern. Yep. <laughs> Six big people time. <laughs> Wah, wah. And then, of course, right after that, after that hour, hop on over to the, if you're a Beans patron, hop on over to our happy hour Zoom call. That's uh, going to be fun. And, of course, you're invited to that as well. Woo! I, I, I can't wait. So All right, I'm everybody. looking forward to it. Well, then, until next week, thank you so much. I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres. And this has been Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. They might be giants have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This ad was paid for with somebody else's money.